Welcome to the C Word, a conservative podcast. Today we're talking about conservation on a budget. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to season six, everyone. Welcome. Yeah. You may notice that Christina isn't in this episode. She has recorded a little message for us that we'll play a bit later. She, you will hear her in this uh, season, don't yeah, you worry. Yeah, she's still around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she'll be doing interviews and all sorts. So uh, she's not in this episode. So instead, we have a special guest host. Who do we have? Yeah. I'm Lorraine Finch, and I'm a conservator of archives. Yay! Woo-hoo. Hi! <laughs> Hi! So yes, it, we've had a bit of a break over summer and I was just wondering what kind of news we've seen floating about. Now, this is recorded at the very start of September and it's not being released until, well, when you're listening to this, folks. So <laughs> these news might not be super fresh, but have we seen anything during the summer or anything that we've thought, oh, we really must mention that? Because I've seen one thing. <laughs> What's your thing? I just love this amazing fight that happened on all over Twitter in the museum world about the proposed new definition of museums. Oh man, I that totally passed me by. <laughs> oh it, no, it really kicked off. It was beautiful to behold. So it seems like ICOM, so with an M, not an N, they've been working on some various new definitions and they're trying to crowdsource them and someone drafted something that was kind of put forward as a new proposal. So it's not adopted yet, but People hated this. I cannot describe how much people hated this definition. I've printed it out so that I can start reading it. It's It's, really long. It's two paragraphs, (laughs) which is quite long for a definition. This is how it goes. Museums are democratising, inclusive and polyphonic spaces for critical dialogue between the pasts and the futures. Acknowledging and addressing the conflicts and challenges of the present, they hold artefacts and specimens in trust for society safeguard diverse memories for future generations and guarantee equal rights and equal access to heritage for all people. Museums are not for profit. They are participatory and transparent and work in active partnership with and for diverse communities to collect, preserve, research, interpret, exhibit and enhance understandings of the world aiming to contribute to human dignity and social justice, global equality and planetary well-being. So, that's two paragraphs. It's catchy. It, it takes a while. I actually like all the things it's trying to say. Yeah. I'm totally on board with all of the things it's trying to do. Mm. What is a museum? Well, let me get my notepad. Like, that's <laughs> kind of not where this needed to go, I think. And I think that's... Pe- people were reacting because it was very lengthy, because it was a very um, lofty language. That's it wasn't, my comment for it. It was written for museum directors, not for people who need to know what a museum is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I think there was a slight disconnect uh, there in terms of who this definition is for and who it's useful for. Like, this is a lovely two paragraphs of things that we should... It's the start of an article, isn't it? It is. Actually, it's the start of a book. A book that's (laughs) written by academics (laughs) and is predominantly for academics and people who have an MPhil in museum studies. That's the level we're at. And I think that's what really, really annoyed people. And that's I love that the fourth word is inclusive and then <laughs> and yet the, <laughs> the yeah. sixth word is polyphonic and i was like wait i don't what's that mean <laughs> this yeah, is see. the least inclusive <laughs> definition yes so uh, i i think that there were some strong feelings and twitter really kicked off about yeah, it yeah. uh social media had a field day uh, people people did not like this like i said i'm on board with what it's trying to express but we need to express it in like 
six Fewer words. words. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, there's been a really interesting discussion about this on the Museums Association and in their most recent newsletter, there was a quote that somebody had sent in to them and it's anonymised and it states, is there a single buzzword that's been omitted from this totally meaningless garbage? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Ooh, straight. It is to the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not holding so, back. Like I say, there were some very strong feelings around this definition. And from what I understand, the most recent step is that they held back in having the vote. They've suspended the date of the vote um, and they're going to revisit the definition and alter it. Yes. Like I said, I think it is It is trying to say something positive and nice and trying to really... Yeah, but it's like, trying to say it all. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's kind of <laughs> the detail. problem. Yes. And yeah, it is. it is very buzzwordy. I have some news about something else that's kicked off in yes. the recent weeks. Go on. So let me make sure I've got the correct union. Prospect has been supporting the Science Museum Group mm-hmm. in a strike for fair pay, essentially, they uh, in a nutshell. It made uh, national headlines. It, it did, mm-hmm. which is very exciting because museum pay is one of those things that we all need to talk about. Yes. Um, and I was really appreciative of the fact that it's from such a huge museum group a yeah, huge museum such a famous museum and such a good one as well yeah um well regarded and yeah basically people suffered a real wage decrease whilst yeah well, um, once the you... higher ups yeah. not mentioning mentioning <clears throat> positions or names or anything um have had bonuses that are larger in some cases than people's like actual yearly wage yeah, there was a really interesting illustration of uh, someone had had a flagpole where they'd put two bits of tape. Uh, one was the wage they were being paid at the Science Museum. One was the actual living wage. By the way, they were, weren't being paid that. And then the top of the flagpole was, in fact, the, shall I say, top brass kind of pay <laughs> before <laughs> bonuses. <laughs> yeah. So that it just it was a great visual representation. Mm-hmm. And there have been some fantastic placards that I hope people oh, are collecting yeah. and oh, saving yeah. because that is some top-notch stuff. Great puns, Donation people. to museums. Really, wink, wink. really good puns. I just I, I just really enjoyed everything yeah, about yeah. this. <laughs> and yeah, obviously we feel very it's strongly about It's plain to pay, see, so. etc. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> We're not asking for the moon, etc., etc. Yeah. Totally on board with that. So happy to see it. So glad that it got so much traction. People have been signing the petition. People have been tweeting in support. And I saw some really great things from visitors on social media saying we we didn't want to cross their picket lines. So we went to some of the neighboring museums and we're going to come back another Mm -hmm. day because we support these people Mm -hmm. and they should be paid properly, which was really nice to see from just members of the public, just people people out with their kids, you know, like that's such a good sentiment. And yeah, I thought it was really interesting that the surrounding museums do pay the living wage and it's just that the science museum group doesn't so like there was a certain amount of comparison mm, going mm-hmm. on and that sort of thing and this is in london as well so it's yeah it's one of those particularly uh hot topics of yeah yeah absolutely in london I yeah think. absolutely so yeah really great to see that super duper good and i saw some great tweets from the people who actually work at the science uh, museum group because uh, there, there were great tweets about people um, saying like how much they love their job but this is important etc so there i just think that it came across as a really a really good like protest yeah uh, in that it was like no we love what we do it's not about that but mm-hmm. we don't do it for love that doesn't pay the rent yeah like <laughs> you, oh if it did <laughs> yeah it was really good natured and like oddly positive kind yeah. of strike yeah, yeah. like 
I think it was really good. I'm really pleased to hear that I hope there, there were good people outcomes. who wouldn't go into the museum because of yeah. it. Because we, you know, funding, external funding bodies and all of the goals and stuff of museums tends to centre around visitor numbers as a huge deal. And if industrial action can affect that directly, then that will really punch hard. Right. Well, I think that's probably all for the news. Oh, oh, oh. Apart from, apart from our dear Jane. Thank you. Our darling dear Jane. She is now Professor Jane Henderson. Yes. Yay. Excellent job, Jane. Well done. So today we're going to talk a bit about conservation on a budget. Like maybe to set the context here, like conservation budgets, some people have loads, some people have literally nothing. Mm -hmm. I've worked in all sorts of organisations and some have masses of money. Like no one ever questions if it's like, I'm just going to order tons of false shape and we're just going to make our mannequins and stuff like that. Like <laughs> no one even bats an eyelid as for the complete opposite. You buy and try and buy a roll of Tyvek and people are like, ooh, mm, oh, do you no, need it? Not even that. Like, <laughs> oh, may I please spend five pounds on scalpel blades? <laughs> and really? Absolutely. There are definitely those Jesus places. Christ. Like the budgets exist, but sometimes uh, those budgets are very small and sometimes almost non-existent. And sometimes it's a case of employees trying to discourage people from spending their budgets that they have. So there's a certain amount of permission asking and stuff like that. So you have to go like a certain amount of rungs above you and ask politely, sir, may I please (laughs) order some acid-free tissue? Like that sort of thing, right? So there are all sorts of working arrangements out there and all sorts of budget types. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we the eyebrows all, were going. We can all guess which one I'm currently in. <laughs> <laughs> so I I try to make as much happen on as little as possible. So that means mm-hmm. I shop around and You're sometimes amazing. I no sometimes I outright bend the rules and, you know, buy something off eBay. We're not really allowed to do that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> there are loads of reasons to be thrifty and You know, even if you've got a good budget, sometimes there's, you know, good reason that you want to make that budget last longer and see that money go further. So today I think we're just going to have a little chat about how ways in which we are thrifty, ways in which we can make our money last longer uh, and how we can do more with less, but not not necessarily less quality, just... Without making too many compromises on um, our professional practice. Yeah, exactly. I think it's also an interesting point to think about people who are freelance because taking what you were saying earlier about shopping around and being thrifty, when it's the money that you're earning, you tend to look, I think, more deeply and more clearly at what you are spending. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's that's true of like, smaller private practice stu- studios in general, like not just if you're a freelancer on your own, but even if you're a small studio, you know, you yeah. just don't necessarily have the amount of cash sloshing about that a large institution might. So hopefully this uh, episode will offer a little bit uh, for everyone, I hope. Well, yes, I mean, if you're looking at something like buying a £6,000 worth piece of equipment for a job that's lasting six weeks <laughs> and that you're not going to use again, mm. you are obviously going to look very carefully at how you might be able to work around not buying that piece of equipment but still yes. do work properly. I'd like to think there are very few treatments that can only be achieved with with a £6,000. Well, me too. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yes. Whilst, whilst true. I mean, but yeah, but sometimes equipment can be surprisingly expensive. Like if you if you look at some of the catalogues out there for like, like some of the big suppliers, then, you know, it, it can be a pretty hefty sum of money for mm-hmm. even something like a... I don't know, a light meter or yeah. you know, like something mm-hmm. like that. So actually, sometimes it's just it comes with a price tag, 
and sometimes that's just a bit too rich mm -hmm. so let's talk equipment w what kinds of things can you do i mean i'm a big big fan of borrowing from other people if at all possible sometimes that does not work out because people need their equipment or because they no longer have the equipment or they don't think it's up to snuff or there's an expectation that you then have to pay to hire it. So it depends on what kind of situation you're in. I probably wouldn't be okay to hire equipment. Borrow is fine. Hire, which comes with a cost, would be a more of a problem. What do you think your employer probably wouldn't like that either? If like, well, what are we getting out of it? I'd love to think that there was a way around that. I lived on a, on a very small cul-de-sac many years ago of mm. eight houses, and each house had a set of ladders, lawnmower, uh, screwdrivers, all the rest of it. And instead of having six lawnmowers and six this and a six that or eight of this and eight of that, it would have been much better if we could have had one communal lawnmower that was lent out around the street. And I'd love to think that there was a way that we could do that as a conservation community to say, I have a fume cupboard or I have a this or I have a that. Here's a list of what we have, when you can borrow it, how it's available. I'm sure there's a way of doing it. I think that'd be so nice. That is actually what I do with my neighbour. He has hedge trimmers and I have a lawnmower and we swap. Oh, yeah. that as an aside. <laughs> so, Lorraine, you're, you're a bit of an expert on this sort of thing, aren't you? And I understand you've got an event coming up. I have, yes, with Museums Development East Midlands um, on the 10th of October. It started off being called Conservation on a Shoestring, but it's expanded more now to being Collections Care on a Shoestring. Uh, and it's at Rutland County Museum in Oakham and it's completely free. Yay! Brilliant! Love a free thing. And you will be covering in that probably some of the things you'll be talking about today. Yes, um, I started with uh, just a few nuggets of ideas and now I have enough to do a two-day probably longer course which I'm going to condense down and do it in a one-day workshop which is very interactive because I always like people to get up and do stuff rather than sit and be talked at. Oh, Learn yeah. by doing. Yeah that's the best. Yep. Brilliant. Yeah. That well in that good. case we'll try and uh, get you to compress it further from a two-day to a one-day to a, <laughs> to a half, half hour. hour. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the things you're talking about with the equipment is I was doing this is where this whole thing came from with the collections care on the shoestring is I was delivering a, a course on dealing with mold and one of the things that puts people off on dealing with mold is they look at it and they just hold up their hands in horror and think about the expense of dealing with a mold outbreak yeah, and know. so we were talking about equipment and you can hire equipment from a conservation supplier and I wish more conservation suppliers would hire their equipment out so you don't have to buy a £6,000 piece of equipment you can hire it for a week or two weeks or however long you like you, you need it for so it was two museums that were participating in this course they both had a mold outbreak they realized that if they shared the hire of this piece of equipment which is 300 pounds they could both use it a week each and it would end up costing them 150 pounds wow much more manageable yeah yeah that is really good I mean, it's funny that we don't do it more, really, because I'm thinking of things that I naturally think of as things that we hire. Freezers. Mm -hmm. Like, if there's, like, a pest outbreak, freezers is a thing that we hire. Why is that not true of more things, really? I, I love the idea that we should have some sort of communal centre, like, where <laughs> things can go and, like, be deployed when they're needed, that sort of thing. I suppose it depends on space as well, doesn't it? Of course, Because yeah. if you've got, if you need a chest freezer for a month or two, mm. but you actually don't really have to space for a chest freezer you're more likely to think yeah, yeah i'll that's get true. one rather than you know go okay well i'll save up my budget and get one yeah that's true i mean because 
you know, equipment com- comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, don't they? But I was thinking this is already something that is sometimes applicable to things like emergency salvage kits. Because mm-hmm. whilst mm-hmm. every museum is likely to have a small kit, like there are certain regions that have a more extensive kit that people kind of subscribe to. So it's kept by ah, a museum with a spare space. Uh-huh. And people basically subscribe monetarily for the upkeep and all that. And they can then use that kit, ha- have someone come fetch it when they need it. So oh, that's nice. That's already yeah, a thing. Lovely for, idea, yeah. Yeah, so there's already a thing for things like rapid response stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think it can be done with conservation equipment and stuff like that. And probably it's much more likely to have to be a regional hub kind of thing. So maybe that's something to talk about with your like local maybe museum mm. development network, that sort of thing, and, and consider if anywhere would have have the space for it mm-hmm. and what the logistics could be and also what kind of money would be needed, etc. But I think there's projects in there. Like I that sounds like something we can solve people. Like it does. <laughs> I think that, that sounds yeah. like completely solvable. <laughs> Yeah, and it also fits with all the discussions we're having around sustainability. Yeah. And maybe one way of sweetening the pill to your employer is to say, well, you know, they're hitting workplace recycling and reuse targets and sustainability. Ooh, yeah. yeah. My um, museum has been in conversations recently about with the local museums, as in mm. the others in Manchester. Yeah. For not quite that, but for sort of training and, and storage kind of mm-hmm. kind of conversations. Not, yeah. you know, early days yet, but... Um, yeah. I, I don't I, see why we wouldn't then go, hey, yeah. guys, do you have a, you know, yeah, wet clean bath table or whatever? Yeah. Mm. No, it's, it's a really interesting idea. I feel like more and more museums are having conversations about shared storage and stuff like that. You know, when there's like a new development in the plans and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I feel like maybe that can be something that can be tacked on. like, And there should be a certain amount of space for equipment hire mm-hmm. and that sort of thing mm. I, I just think that there's something in in this yeah. we can make this happen yeah. people like come on what do you think are the first steps then Lorraine if you're in a, imagine you're in your studio and you need some things what what do those things tend to be that you start thinking of saving on the first thing is to look at your costs I had a discussion with a gent who used to work for one of the big conservation suppliers and he when he went to visit um conservation studios would always say to the conservators have a look at your invoices and see what you're spending the most money on and horrifically the thing that they are spending the most money on is delivery oh, <laughs> what i can wow. definitely understand that that's it's insane <laughs> yes and so that's that's the first place to start is actually look at what you're spending and what you're spending it on another institution that i visited had three different institutions in one building they would all order separately from the (laughs) conservation suppliers so that's three sets of costs Mm -hmm. and that happens in one institution maybe the curator orders something the conservator orders something some of the volunteer coordinator orders something and they all come separately and delivery is huge i mean 35 pounds plus VAT, which if you're not a charity, you can't claim your VAT back. Ouch, yeah. And we're talking about actual material and equipment deliveries, don't we? Not not anything hyper-specialist like art handling or anything like that. No, no. no. So if you want some scalpel blades or some brushes, so if you order them from a conservation supplier, I think the smallest cost is uh, £9 for delivery. Mm. So £9 plus VAT. Yeah on a box of scalpel blades so it's that's where you need that's crazy yeah it's where to start is what's costing you Mm. what so something that i in i mean my museum has a fairly healthy 
conservation budget because they because they rely on us to raise funds the museum basically yeah, yeah. Yeah. um and you know silk crepeline isn't cheap um yeah <laughs> um, and given that though we still try and uh, as you were saying earlier make that money go further because yeah. for example by really being careful last year we were able to get a plan chest um, mm. because we were really careful and you know squeezed an extra thing in there essentially so we do buy on amazon quite a lot mm. yeah but i'm like personally ethically unhappy with amazon because of all of the reasons and <laughs> the pay and the working conditions and blah 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 but the postage is so cheap and you can get like a you know box of gloves for you know delivered to you for nothing i mean yeah so i mean obviously here we we wrestle slightly with our conscience as well because i'm a big fan of getting stuff off ebay sometimes yeah and sometimes i do that out of my own pocket because i basically can't be reimbursed for stuff that we get off ebay because we're not supposed to use ebay mm-hmm. so the rule is only use uh the approved suppliers now the approved suppliers are not approved by things that we would like to like work ethics or <laughs> the fact that they pay their staff or that they yeah. don't use child labor you know uh-huh. those are not <laughs> the things that we actually choose our suppliers on it seems to be some sort of i don't know there, there's some sort of vetting involved probably just that they were willing to send us information in a format that yeah could be processed they filled in out the correct the form. way yeah yeah they filled out the form they could be bothered with that and somehow they are now a recognized supplier and we're not really allowed to shop around or buy our gloves from the che- cheaper supplier which is also approved but no because we have to use these guys i don't know there's mm-hmm. there's like all this sort of weird bureaucracy mm-hmm. going on and people yeah. are approved for reasons that are beyond my comprehension <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly not for cheapness or efficiency or or indeed labor pra- or, or labor practices um <laughs> but yeah so <laughs> sorry the, the rant is real um but yeah so i mean obviously it's not good that i am buying cheap things from china because the working conditions there are horrific. And also the carbon footprint on stuff mm-hmm. being shipped over from China mm-hmm. is horrendous. But it is also the way that I get a lot of my stuff. So, I mean, I, I realise that I'm part of the problem here. I, I am also part well, of the consumer society here. But and If we recognise, though, that that's because it's affordable and that's because they make it affordable I mean, to be I, competitive. Then, yeah, I mean, this then, is a global economy problem, this is, I suppose. This is capitalism, guys. <laughs> I, I suppose <laughs> that, that is true. I was going to say, one of the ways around the delivery costs from the suppliers that we generally use is that they're going to hate me for saying this they all allow you to go and pick stuff up oh i mean that's totally not an option for me however i i guess guess that that's an option for a lot of people actually so actually that's a fair point isn't pell based in this in norfolk yeah Yeah. norfolk is like the least accessible place in the world (laughs) i've been to all of the conservation suppliers and that in person and picked up materials and equipment Oh, I love that you do road trips. Reasons. That yes. is interesting. I love it. I would I would suggest that you ask them first rather than just turn up on <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I left my things. <laughs> that could be a little bit startling, I agree. And the other thing is joint delivery. Okay, so I yes. know if you're working in an institution and you're one museum and there's another museum 20 miles down the road and you've both got different accounting systems, then they're not necessarily going to allow you to amalgamate a delivery. But if you're in the same institution... Mm. and your curator's ordered something and you've ordered something and somebody else has ordered something and they've all come from one of the major suppliers or a a supplier why don't you just put that all together in one order yeah not three sets of delivery costs you're paying we i mean this isn't really a step towards money saving in a in an official sense but my institution has a list (laughs) we we i mean we're a fairly we're, we're a very small 
you know collections department of three plus archives but we just we just write the things that we want from various suppliers on a list and when we got certain numbers of things on a list we purchase see see, i do that for me but then i can't do it with the other people because we all have different budget pots so we can't order something together because they come out of different pots which is a great frustration to my life can you not ask them to invoice separately and deliver together why (laughs) (laughs) no because i've tried it's i think to be fair i think the problem is with our purchasing system and not with the supplier so i think if it was a world where i could do this by their using their website for example i think it would have been fine to like Mm -hmm. put in three orders and then ask for them to be like delivered together i think that would have been fine unfortunately that's not my life because (laughs) local authorities so (laughs) my life is needlessly complicated for no discernible reason but i do think that's a great idea Mm -hmm. when possible if it is possible in your institution that is totally a great idea and i love that uh, I already try not to order one-off items though because delivery yes. costs again. Yeah. Uh, so I tried. I have a constant shopping list on mm-hmm. my wall that just gets longer and longer and longer. And eventually, when I hit a certain point, I'm like, I'm gonna have to ask permission and then put this in now. And then it's more difficult because the cost that you're asking for is higher than just two scalpel blades. It, yes. So then it then it becomes more of a sales pitch. So then I have to <laughs> basically do a business case of I definitely need these things to do my actual job. Please help. Yeah. But yeah, this that's just that's just my life. Because that's the other thing about having approved suppliers also um because quite often the same product is sold by a different company yes for less money i have a good it's two really great examples of this one is relating to a handling charge but i was speaking to another conservator who wanted some pigment so she went to the normal conservation supplier and it was out of stock so she looked on the internet found exactly the same pigment by the manufacturer who is in europe and ordered it from them because it was less expensive. What? Oh, see that in some ways that makes sense to me that getting it straight from the source might be cheaper than getting mm-hmm. it from resellers. Essentially, mm-hmm. it it will vary vastly because let's be fair people like Pell and the conservation resources they get they get their stuff from so many different places mm-hmm. that actually it wouldn't be sensible for us to try to track down where they yeah, come from it's, originally it's a convenience thing rather absolutely. than a cost thing and yes, absolutely. for people who don't yeah they're a one-stop shop mm-hmm. like yeah. I said it's the convenience but things that are easier to source like a dehumidifier or or a blender which you could buy from Argos yes mm-hmm. which I do or, or Sainsbury's or wherever I go to Wilco a lot you are paying for the convenience yeah Wilco's pound stretchers yeah. they're brilliant charity shops yes I ways that I have sourced equipment include asking a dentist that was closing down got an ultrasonic cleaner what yeah, uh, yeah. They, they weren't interested they were literally putting in a skip so I had that <laughs> So I have an ultrasonic cleaner. Sometimes it, just when people refurb or close down, they will give you stuff because they just want to get rid of it and they're just going to keep paying for skips to be delivered. So sometimes totally worth just approaching people like that. Yeah, find a friend in the NHS. Oh yeah, that's also great. I love how sort of sinister that is, but I don't know why it's sinister. <laughs> It isn't. We're not depriving anyone of any no, stuff, no, okay? We're not taking people's prosthetic limbs <laughs> no, or anything. No, no, it's not that weird. They're not allowed to sell it because in, in case you then sue the, yes. the NHS because it's broken, but um, there are ways that you can do it legitimately. Yes. So find a friend in the NHS or, like you say, the, the dentists and buy these things or get them for free. Yeah. What are the legitimate ways? They do have sales. Oh, I see. A bit like the police do. Yeah. The police? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 
lost and found stuff. So all the bikes that have been handed in. So yeah, so uh, this is fascinating, guys. You're welcome. It's like I hope the listeners are as fascinated as I am. This is like some black market dealing here. No, no, it's not. Well, Um, I'll give you another example. The bench that I work on comes from BHS, Mm -hmm. British Home Stores, the High Street shop, and it's an X display. Um, yeah cabinet it's the right height it's on wheels it's Mm -hmm. white it's melanine so it's wipe clean it's metal Mm -hmm. and plastic and they were refurbishing the shop this is before the shop closed but they were refurbishing the shop they had the stock outside they had chairs they had all sorts of stuff and I went in and said could I take the bench they said yes and it's the ideal workbench and it cost me nothing and similarly I got loads of perspex stands for uh, from a shop that was mm-hmm. closing down because they were just like desperately giving them away because they were just like <laughs> they, no, mm-hmm. but they were just like look we're, we're just gonna have to bin it otherwise like we don't actually have time to get rid of this in any other way if you want them take them and I took like a whole bag of them uh, and uh, yeah they're shop display stands but they're acrylic mm-hmm. they're just as good mm-hmm. as anything else like that's fun yeah. mm-hmm. So like that's so that, that's been a way of sourcing weird display materials. Ely Museum. This is another thing is when museums are refurbishing. So I was at Ely Museum recently and they've just been awarded a heritage fund grant to refurbish the museum completely. So they are taking everything off display, everything out of the stalls and everything, the display materials, the office chairs, the office files, the um, storage units are all going. Oh, it's giving me a bit of anxiety. Sorry. They're just in the ground doing all of that. Chloe is generally paled. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's amazing. Are they, and are there websites and things that like a museum free cycle? There is the museum free cycle. But again, I think this is where we need to be more joined up. So it's like us having pieces of equipment saying we've got this piece of equipment. A leaf caster for me is the big example because they're very expensive and generally they become a glorified table because they get used so infrequently in a studio. Mm-hmm, yeah. But they're really useful piece of equipment Mm. so again it's going back to that thing if you said look I've got a leaf caster if you want to come in and use it then that's fine but you have to know it's there before you can ask our museum is only doing a small scale closure but we've got lots of office chairs Mm. but we're not telling one another so well I mean Ely have been good they've had the office stuff they've been putting outside the museum and the locals have been taking like when I was there they offered me lots of files and um, I I was on the train I couldn't carry it all the Museum of London have a clear out a couple of times a year and they advertise that and that's on their website and that's mainly materials rather than equipment Mm -hmm. that's fabulous so that'll be paper and tyvek rolls and all sorts of things like that i mean that's great and i i firmly believe that more people should be doing that museum free free cycle is quite good also it is nice when people do call outs like Mm -hmm. so it's worth it's worth if you're working in a particular area to just keep an eye on like people and places around you because you never know when there might be a clear out Mm. I used to work for a national museum Mm. and because it was publicly funded we weren't allowed to sell anything so things like the data loggers thermohygrographs which were no longer required because we'd gone onto a radio telemetry system we could have given those to a smaller museum Mm. and said at least you've got some environmental monitoring equipment now whereas before you had none but we weren't allowed to it had to go into skip because nobody was allowed to profit and it's absolutely heartbreaking it is they Mm. closed the conservation department down completely and everything everything went in a skip however at that point I still had friends who worked there so I have some very nice sable brushes from those skips yeah I mean (laughs) now that gives me anxiety as well now it is heartbreaking when because it's just the immense amount of waste Mm, involved Mm -hmm. in that sort of thing that really upsets me I do understand the reasoning that went into that decision 
but yeah. I also fundamentally disagree with it because yeah. I, I think that's stupid. But yeah. yeah, let's let's try not to waste. We only got one planet. Come on, share instead. <laughs> Come on, people. So let's recap. So yes, sorry. So we've covered equipment largely, haven't we? That you can. Ooh, I just want to. Oh. I just want to point out other great ways of sourcing equipment uh-huh. are things like. So we call them crime converters, which is not what they're actually called. It's pawn shops, like uh, cash <laughs> converters, cash generator, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, those are great places I've gotten loads of stuff in there you know because it's just it's just used things so it's you know you you can you can get power tools for like three quid because they, they're mm-hmm. just there and they're a bit dinged up but they still work and that, that's a crucial bit so uh, it's a great place to go for cheap equipment if you if you do need to buy and you can't borrow and chair shops like like Lorraine said also mm-hmm. really really good so like, mm-hmm. sometimes the stuff in there is a fiver also Ikea's uh, bargain corner is amazing oh yeah, yeah. I like the works, um, yes. the high street store. Yes. I get quite a lot of brushes from there and self-healing cutting mats. Yes. Um, I've got an easel that I use to support one of my lights. So I, I think they're brilliant. And market stalls, I needed some really small pliers um, mm. and they were a pound each from a market stall. I'm a yes. fan of a market stall yeah. for small things like definitely. that. Yeah, definitely. Clamps, I got loads of clamps on one. So mm. as well as the, the sort of cheaper things you can buy, to recap, we can also contact dentists and certain friends at the NHS and <laughs> the police, apparently, um, to, to, to recycle the more specific things I suppose and then what we're saying is we need to make efforts for intercommunications with local yeah. museums and also suppliers because quite often they have damaged roles or ended yes. roles they're taking up space mm. in in the suppliers so you can if you contact them they usually have a room full of half rolls of Tyvek or something that somebody's ordered and haven't wanted and they can't sell because it's a one-off. I get lots of materials like that. Yeah. How do suppliers feel about that though? If you contact them and say, hi, I don't want to spend money on the the things, but can I have the things for cheaper if it's in the room of the seconds room? Do they have a problem with that? I think it depends on the pitch. I mean, sometimes people... (laughs) Obviously, I wouldn't. (laughs) That wouldn't be my I don't want to spend money giving you... That's that's not going to go over well. But I mean... like suppliers have limited storage space just like the rest of us right, so, of course. so you know how sometimes you might have that one mannequin that's for some reason covered in i don't know something something terry cloth like and you mm-hmm. definitely don't want to use and yeah. ever anymore but someone's desperate for a mannequin and you might just go just have it because it's taking up space mm-hmm. and i need that space for a better mannequin <laughs> uh, it might in fact be that sort of thinking you know yeah. with the suppliers mm-hmm. where it's like actually i could clear a whole box on their shelf and that means that I have their shelf for something else that actual mm-hmm. stock that will sell you know what have it for delivery costs for example or mm-hmm. something similar mm-hmm. you know so it might be that you strike a bargain it might not be free but it might be heavily discounted or uh-huh. it might be you know pay shipping for it or come and collect it I, I you know and that'll be mm-hmm. fine always have the conversation like there's I mean the worst thing that, that's going to happen is to say no <laughs> yeah, Bye for yeah. Yeah. how yeah. do you open those conversations then Lorraine I have a very good um, relationship with preservation equipment and Aww. they usually tell me what's in the room and do Ooh. I want it Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's nice. Well, not, not everyone yeah. can schmooze that well, but <laughs> but that's good to know that you can have that kind of relationship. That, that's yeah. really useful. And, you know, and de- depending on where you are in the world, you might be able to have that with your local supplier and you might be able to have it with your local art shop or, you know, yes, like, yeah. you know something something that's that's useful to you. Yeah, and I would recommend saying that, you know, I, I want half a roll of Tyvag. 
Tyvek in, in your room of requirements, do you have one of these? Because <laughs> yeah. it's costing them money. Yeah. That space that's being used to store stock that they can't sell yeah. because it's too difficult for whatever reason is costing them money. It's better for them to shift it, put something in there that they can sell. Yeah, but likewise, they don't want to put it in a skip any more than we mm-hmm. want to put stuff in a skip. No. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah. Things should go to a good home. <laughs> so we've started talking about um, materials now, haven't we? I think mm. my biggest question is... How do we know that things are good enough to use within our guidelines yeah, okay. if they don't come from the main suppliers and the main uh, agreed locations? I mean, here you've got, to, the use, right label. You've got to use your, your judgment yeah. here. And I, it depends vastly on what you're actually trying to do, mm-hmm. I suppose. I mean, if something is advertised as acid-free card or paper, you can actually test that because there are ph testing pens for example Uh so you can check if that is actually correct when you receive a batch like you Mm -hmm. so like some things you can verify yourself i'm trying i'm struggling to think of an example of a material where i would have my doubts that i would actually buy i have one yes go on i I wanted some adhesive which um is supplied by one of the conservation suppliers and it's Mm -hmm. they are the only supplier for that adhesive Mm -hmm. but i only wanted a very small bottle which was about £8 plus delivery. Mm. They wouldn't sell me one £8 bottle. They said they had to put a handling charge on it, which was what? £30. What? what? That, <laughs> okay, that's, loud. <laughs> that is somewhat outrageous. Wow. <laughs> this particular adhesive. So by the time one £8 bottle from them would have arrived in my studio, it would have cost me £50. Oof. So what a lot of companies do is they buy the really large vats of this adhesive and they decant them into smaller bottles it's exactly (laughs) the same product Uh, yes so i went on the internet found exactly the same product from another supplier who was willing to supply me with one bottle and it cost me nine pounds yeah there's an etsy shop and i know etsy is normally for handmade stuff Mm -hmm. but that sells some I want to say paper conservation supplies, like some conservation supplies in very small quantities. Clearly, this is someone who is has has ordered bulk had to bulk order stuff and mm-hmm. is then selling off single sheets of stuff, etc. Which I think is a genius idea because I only need one sheet. Yeah, I need an A4 sheet of this material. I do not need a five meter roll. Uh, there's mm-hmm. no way I can afford it. There's no way I want it, uh-huh. and I might not know anyone else in the area who uses that material. So that's how I've gotten small quantities of things sometimes, just by just splurging on like a very small Etsy shop mm-hmm. uh, from mm-hmm. from this place. Uh, so like I'm eternally grateful to people who do that because it means that I can have the amount of stuff that I I need and want for less and i'm just eternally grateful to people who do that like that is great let's be specific then so okay what can they do then what can suppliers do so are um issues like that is obviously issues with um costs for delivery versus what they're actually getting to pay for the delivery is that because it's new and they haven't set up small quantities deliveries yet i mean and is that it might be um that it's hard it's hard to talk about this on the basis that i don't really know what the supply chain looks like because is it is it that the actual supplier of say the adhesive actually only supplies it in a five litre bucket (laughs) and the cost effective way for them to split it up is to supply it in two litre containers right and then anything beyond that just gets 
stupid because mm-hmm. that's a lot of faff. You, yeah. you got to pay someone Three to count all that, yeah. and you got to keep yeah. it fresh and all that. Like, is it in fact that it just doesn't work in terms mm-hmm. of those costs? Yeah, because yeah. I can see that. Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, in you, this instance, I was going to say in this instance they do actually advertise it in the small quantity that mm. I wanted. So yes. I was actually yes. ordering something that they offer. Mm-hmm. But if it's not cost effective for them to to do that, because obviously they have to go and get that small bottle off the shelf. Yeah, they have wrap it up it has to go through their systems there to be boxed and sent out for delivery so if it's not cost effective for them to do it and if it's a way of deterring people and saying okay there's a 30 pound handling charge but if you buy more there will be no handling charge Mm. and they sell more product then fair enough at the end of the day they're a business they do what they need to do yeah no exactly i've definitely made decisions based on well it's actually far better to buy loads of it but i really don't want to have that waste hanging over my head so i'll I'll stump up to have less so I've got more space in my Oh yeah, no, I mean if, chemicals can Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and I and I also do that because yeah. I don't have the option of say selling on half of it uh-huh. because obviously mm. that my employer wouldn't be okay with that. We mm. again we can sell the stuff that we buy. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean. But I mean maybe if I was in private practice I would consider reconsider that vastly. Maybe I, maybe I would then like put it in like I don't know, two hundred mil bottles, yeah. and go look. If anyone else wants one, there is one. Yeah. Just pay Have for shipping and like, yeah, 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 and some of this. Like maybe that's what I would do. I mean, I, that's actually quite a good idea. Maybe that's what we should all do. <laughs> but mm. I think it is genuinely from the big conservation supplies side. It is probably a thing of it's not cost effective to split it up further. Yes, which is why it's done at grassroots level, if ever. Yes, and I can understand that if um, we are using materials. I think we did we I think we covered this in uh, our hazards episode that mm. that. We are using materials very differently in some cases yes. to how they were intended, mm. which obviously has implications on the you know the health hazards that we may or may not be facing. Sure, if we're using them differently or or in much smaller quantities. So I can imagine if people are selling Lascaux, for example, that's meant to coat. I mean, I'm, this is I'm just making this up now. <laughs> meant to coat like an entire house or whatever. Oh yeah, <laughs> and we're using it to coat a small box then we're never going to use the amount of that the supplier that thinks the supplier yeah. Is, yeah. is basing yeah, yeah. on so i don't i think the solution is probably in the shape of something like what you're talking about but i just know that in our fridge we've got massive those the massive lascal buckets oh yeah i mean you can buy yeah and i've worked there for two and a half years now and we've barely you know yeah using it really regularly but i mean barely get to I mean, the right, middle of it slight tangent but i i i already split up the stuff that i buy so mm-hmm. if i buy a big thing of lascaux i already split it up 50 50 yeah because i work on two sites uh-huh. and i don't want to uh, cart stuff between them because yeah, yeah. i don't have a car so it means i have to lug yeah. things in my backpack which is sometimes not even practical so i just have them on two sites but i can't afford to buy two bottles of it because uh-huh. if if a bottle of lascaux is like 40 quid i'm not spending 80 yeah. uh, for the um, the amount that I'm going to use. So actually I will split it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, then I will go to eBay and buy the little chemical containers or similar uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, from China. And then I will decant it into that. Mm-hmm. And actually that's how I keep my practice rolling because mm-hmm. then I've gotten in two places and I haven't spent vastly more money. That just works for me. But, you know, it's like tangent on working practices there. But, mm-hmm. you know. but when you were saying earlier about ensuring the quality of the material mm. in terms of things like... That's my main concern. Yeah. So in terms of adhesives such as gelatin, it's recommended that you go and buy food grade or medical grade. So I know a conservator who did a lot of work around um, 
using gels to uh, soften um, materials that you want to remove, for example, the remains of the spines of books. And she recommended using the Dotska Utska um, gelatin from Tesco's because she also wanted something that was easily available to conservatives rather than having to go to one specific supplier. And the thing about buying something that's food grade or medical grade is because it's produced for another industry, it's produced in larger quantities and therefore is less expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I do like buying things in like supermarkets and stuff as well. Like that's... (laughs) It's kind of, it just kind of tickles me to go in and buy some gelatin and, and or some glycerin or something and just be like, this will never be food. Yes, <laughs> this is not for consumption. You you mentioned um, using things in ways that they weren't intended. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really mm-hmm. interesting one because mm-hmm. I think conservators can MacGyver things quite well. Yes. <laughs> and I think but that's like one of our superpowers that we do that. Definitely. And I think there are loads of great ways that we can use like everyday things in new ways. Lorraine, do you have any examples? Well, I wanted a really small humidification chamber. Um, and normally I will make mine from, I have trays, which I put a Perspex cover over, but they were too big. Mm. I wanted something that was much smaller. And in the house, I had an old CD box, which was a really useful box, but for just to put CDs in. And it was just the right size and shape. So I used that as the humidification chamber. Yeah. Genius. Uh, Absolutely and- genius. Similarly, someone uh, on Twitter, um, when we did our tools episode, Mm -hmm. was talking about how they use a glass butter dish for humidification. Really tiny. How elegant. And hilariously, (laughs) one of my friends got one as a moving moving in gift and she did not want it. Then basically she gave me a butter dish and now I have a tiny humidification. (laughs) But, you know, yeah, so reuse. Richard Hawkes, recently I put a, a tweet up this week about using um, pots, so things like the uh, coffee pots that you can get in the tip tree jam jars. And I asked about oh, how people use the, oh, yeah. the goo pots. And he fills the bottom with plaster of Paris, allows it to dry, put a drop of acetone or toluene on it, turns it upside down and puts it over the object. And it's a mini solvent chamber to remove uh, tape adhesives. Oh, my God, that's <gasps> genius. What? That is literally what I'm going to do next. <laughs> such a good idea can we start a thing now i don't know if it could be like an episodely thing but can we please have conservation hacks corner yes or something mm-hmm. where we <laughs> send us your best the, hacks. the next the next this hack for today that, this episode that would be great this. yes can please. we do that that is yes amazing <laughs> <laughs> the other thing i have is a piano key from a piano that was gone oh, past yes. being able to use and so taking off i have to say ivory from the key um, but it makes an excellent, really thin bone folder or tool to get under and in things. It's one of my most used pieces of equipment. Oh, love it. I love going to Wagamama because I love their food. Oh, yeah. I can't mm. use chopsticks, but they do give you free chopsticks. <laughs> I always take chopsticks and I use them as stirrers in my lab basically indefinitely. And sometimes because, because you know, they have a certain amount of flex to them and they uh-huh. actually um, join together at the top yeah. initially, at least until you break them apart. They act as really long clamps, which are great for some <gasps> things because they have just the right mm. amount of tension. It is so good. I love Wagamama chopsticks. They are so good. <laughs> you yeah. ladies are total geniuses. You're geniuses. <laughs> I feel like I've been, maybe I've been um, working in a purpose-built lab for too long. <laughs> Born New Horizons. Go to Wagamama's. <laughs> Use weird stuff. Let's go to well, Wagamama. Well, yeah, the other thing that I was introduced to very early on in my career with Corian board and it's actually made what's that as a kitchen work surface so it's ah. plastic and stone mixed together granite mixed together to make a very hard surface that really doesn't react to anything mm. and we had cut size and used 
them for flattening objects. Oh, that's a good idea. But you that's can work amazing. on top of them. But the thing is, go to your local kitchen fitters and yeah. just say, have you got any offcuts of Corian, please? Yeah. That's that, brilliant. That is a good idea. Do and also, you could do that with marble and stuff if you wanted weights? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah I would absolutely say so. Yes. Yeah, this, like it, any industry you think of will have weird offcuts of things. And also, <laughs> yeah. I love a good offcut. I save my plastic offcuts and my oh, yeah. foam board offcuts, and I do weird stuff with them. In fact, there's a slight craft project behind me on based on foam board offcuts because we're using them to make like little little name tags and little I signs. I can confirm she's telling the truth <laughs> for an event. Uh, so on on the reverse of them, they actually have old interpretation, but the back of them. Can has I have been, a look? Yeah, yeah. Hang on, I'm taking course. some experts. What's that? <laughs> She's generally leaving leaving the studio table to have a look. But yes, yeah. So some of them, some of them have stuff on the back. Yeah, but yeah. So some of them have like old oh, stories. The school was built on Blythe Road at the edge of it's torn away village, a large housing estate built by the colliery owners. Their employees. Yeah. See, so they're 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 no they're no good for that anymore. But that doesn't mean that they're not good. They're for actually anything. very elegant. So yeah. So I'm I'm having lots of fun with that. I love using leftovers. I'm, yeah, a big, local, I'm a big hoarder of leftovers. Yeah, my local takeaway gives provides the takeaways in plastic um, containers, mm. which I wash out and I reuse those. Yes. Some, some I just use for storage around the studio. So I've got scalpel blades stored in and they stack really well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love that sort of stuff. And another one is something I learned recently on a photography course, which was amazing, was a uh, that sometimes you get those silvered lids for takeaway containers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They actually make really good tiny reflectors when you're photographing stuff like coins. <laughs> oh. So just bounce a little bit of light onto the object so you get a little bit less shadow. Oh, wow. And like... That's a stupid thing that I never would have thought of if they hadn't told me about it. And now I use it all the time. <laughs> That's so yeah. genius. Because yeah. it's just so clever. I bought some nets for the house, for the front of the house, because people will stare in. But they were too long. But they were weighted. So I cut them to length. And I took the weights out of the bottom. And they're little snakes. <gasps> so I've now got loads of little yes. snakes to weight down my objects. Beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, <laughs> love snake weights. So I have one final, uh, I suppose, area of our conservation needs to ask about. Yes, go on. We've covered materials, we've covered equipment. Mm -hmm. What about chemicals? What about solvents and things? Because, I I mean, I have to admit, I have not, at this point in my career, ever had to order IMS or acetone or anything myself so i don't know what the normal procedure is i realize there are suppliers and i know that there'll be a list in the studio and i probably should be aware of it already sorry boss um <laughs> but if you go to that supplier and it's ridiculously expensive is it worth trying to cut costs with where you go is it worth trying to buy some white spirit from somewhere that isn't technically your agreed supplier well i mean Again, I think it depends on what you use something for, how much you're going to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's all about context. Imagine if you had to, if it, you had to use it like proper, proper. You had to soak something in it or something. Mm. If it was like, if it was your the IMS you were using for all of your conservation needs. I mean, if you think about it, like some of these things are actually very difficult to get hold of, of from anyone mm. that isn't like a massive supplier. Yeah. So things that you can get off the high street. I mean, 
Any any methylated spirits that's sold in the high state all have dyes in them because you're yes, not supposed to drink them. Yes, that was my understanding. Yeah. So, in actual fact, those are useless to you. Uh-huh. Um, okay. But I think you can get isopropyl alcohol in some shops. Actually, uh, you can get deionized water from uh, to using cars f- from uh, off the shelf. Okay. Yeah. Which I do sometimes mm-hmm. if I need to like travel with them. I feel like cheap white spirit. I've not mm-hmm. really noticed any difference. In terms of quality, but then I have no way of measuring that yeah, other than that's, results. That's my thing, yeah. Um, so that's so that's that's a bit that's a bit trickier, like to to gauge, in mm-hmm. my opinion. But I'm quite happy to go to Wilco for White Spirit because okay. I, I haven't noticed any difference. But then I very rarely use White Spirit anyway, so I suppose I use it very sparingly. Oh, it's a really good question. It really is. I mean, the only experience I've had of this is years ago. I have on one occasion used 99% acetone that you uh use for like hardcore false nail removal mm. i can't really even remember what i would think i was think i was dissolving something i think i was cleaning something or dissolving something and i used that because i had no other choice mm. but i wasn't i was uncomfortable because i was like what's the one percent guys and there was nothing <laughs> on the, lo- the label what do you think I was going to say i don't tend to use a lot of um solvents in my work but i know uh metals conservator who is self-employed and he buys most of his chemicals off the internet partly but it's again because of quantity it's mm-hmm. mainly because of quantity he can't get what he needs it's also and i'm not recommending that people start necessarily doing this but um the laws are different in europe so he buys a lot when he's in france <laughs> it's, it, it's, more easy to, it's easier to buy you can just go into a shop and buy it which it's much that more is true. Some some chemicals are easier to find in some places than others. And I, I seem to recall this came up when we did the extreme conservation uh, episode, for example, that in certain places of the world it's easier to get some things than others. Oh, yeah. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, your mileage will vary, mm-hmm. um, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And it's probably all going to change now because, well, yeah. yes. the B word. <laughs> the B yeah. word. So the only other thing that I've used as a replacement for IMS is surgical spirit, but I've never used that on the objects. I've only ever right. used that to clean things like shelves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but I mean, I, that, that is a way around like cleaning stuff like your tools or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm, full of gunk. Mm-hmm. Like you could use a cheaper thing then, for example. Yeah. Like you don't necessarily mm-hmm. have to use the lab-grade stuff that should probably be used for objects. But um, when I put a tweet out about this and ask for people's, mm ideas and what they do one of the people that replied said that that you shouldn't assume that because it's not recommended um as best it's not as it's not good enough many adhesives chemicals tools and boxes will do the job still meeting conservation standards so i think the thing is to use your knowledge and your skills and if you're Mm -hmm, unsure to ask somebody else absolutely because again it all goes back to this thing about sharing the knowledge somebody might have bought a bottle of acetone off the internet which was brilliant but they just we, ha- we don't tell one another because we just assume everybody knows or they won't be interested. Yeah. Or, in fact, there's stigma attached to it. Because you bought it yeah. from a different supplier, maybe people will somehow take offence or think that you're not yeah. doing your job properly, mm-hmm. etc. So I think there's also a certain amount of like social stigma attached to it. Mm. Much like buying Asta Smart Price is associated with stigma for, stigma for some people. Something that uh, did uh, occur to me as you were talking about solvents was that early this year uh, I learned some gilding skills. And the conservator who was training us, she'd extensively tried different kinds of alcohol 
that were useful during the gilding process and the cheapest kind of gin that you can buy is yeah. in fact really really useful during gilding yeah uh, so i went to tesco and got tesco's own gin and people really questioned my sanity when i came back <laughs> <with that. laughs> so what is i mean that fascinates me because i've also heard I think a field ar- a field archaeological conservator saying like, oh, and if you if you're in a in a pinch, you can just buy cheap vodka, and that will do for your IMS. Yes, I've heard yeah. that from several yeah. people as well. What is what's in commercial? What's in a gin or in a vodka that isn't <laughs> alcohol? Because I I don't drink either of these things, and they just taste like both taste like death to me. So. <laughs> I feel like I'm not well-versed enough in alcohol (laughs) culture to actually be able to answer that question, but I'm sure a listener can. (laughs) What are your contaminants there? Like like my question of what my contaminants are in the acetone. Presumably there must be some sugar in there, for example. example. But but I guess it's it's also a question of, for example, if if you're stuck with some vodka, it's because you have nothing else. Yes. You cannot get anything else. (laughs) It isn't. I always go for the vodka. I think there's a there's a very big difference there, but yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I can see that now. I can see that now. <laughs> yes. Basically, I think there are loads of ways of being thrifty, and there uh-huh. are loads of ways of basically making your money go further for you. And a lot of it is by shopping around or thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Do oh, you absolutely. want to list some of the other things that you will be covering in your training? So it seems like making your own. Ooh. Oh, that we haven't covered that. Oh, okay, okay. She's so excited now. <laughs> Little things, tips around how you're working in your studio, where we started off with assessing your costs as your first step. And then the second one for me after that would be ensuring that your resources, you know what you've got, so that you've got them well stored Ah. and easy to access. So, I mean, I'm sure we're all guilty of it. You can't find something or you think you bought it, but you don't know where it is or you think you've run out of it or you don't even know you've got it because you bought it so many years ago. Yeah. (laughs) And you order another one. And then two days later, you find the one you bought 14 years ago. So, you know, so you're not duplicating because that clearly is a waste of money. And there's a lot of internet resources. I mean, apps, a brilliant app to turn your mobile phone into a thermal imaging camera. We did the Be Inventive. There's lots of cheap and cheerful solutions for working together, working with students and volunteers, looking for less expensive suppliers and shopping around. Well, hey, something else that I was thinking about sharing, because... If we're trying to pull resources, then something that is massively expensive and sometimes absolutely impossible is books. The literature and conservation. Yeah. Oh, very, yes. very, very, very expensive. Uh, so yeah. there's a thing that I would love if there could be reference libraries that we all shared. Like, yes, please. Mm. I mean, they would probably have to be physical on the basis that loads of these things are out of print and they're not available in any other format, etc. Yes, exactly. Oh, books are so expensive. So Sometimes expensive. hundreds of pounds. It's insane. Yeah. So I've been trying to get hold of um, the uh, Selwyn. Um, oh, good luck! Corro- good luck corrosion. because that's one I would love. Three hundred pounds. They are out of print. I would love one, but it is yeah. never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe maybe a book loaning. You know, can we can we do like a. a conservation library where people loan books and i think there would have to be loads of little ones like dotted about but i mean some people might actually genuinely have these books lying around and they don't use them very often it would be good if we could pull them in one place yeah you know or like a couple of hubs that would be amazing Mm -hmm. much like the equipment that would be really good crossover to have books and equipment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so again you have to know what people have got yes that is the problem isn't it yeah, well, I have lots of books on photographic conservation, which I would be quite happy to let other people use. Yeah, 
But of course, they don't know they're here. They no, don't know exactly. what cycles I've got. Exactly. So yeah, maybe we need to find ways of better sharing these mm-hmm. sorts of things mm. and figuring out where they are and plot them on a map or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Something. Some, some, yeah. Something should definitely be done here because. Well, it goes back to the technology, doesn't it? Yes. Because the technology can do this for us. Yeah. Oh loads of good ideas guys yeah. and if you guys have more ideas listening then please let us know via twitter or email or anything that you want to do because we'd love to hear from you well thank you so much lorraine that was super helpful thank you thank you thank you and oh you're very welcome and good luck with the course can't wait to hear how it went and for anyone who's interested in pooling resources in any shape way or form please do get in touch with Lorraine because she would love to hear from you. If you want to share equipment or books or supplies, if you want to do anything like that, she would love to hear from you. Uh, We'll pop her contact details in the show notes. Hi, C-Word listeners. I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator from Cambridgeshire. And I've asked Jenny to include this message in the first episode of this season. I'm really sorry I couldn't make the recordings for the first two episodes of this season, but life got in the way on the recording day. And so uh, there are a couple of other things I wanted to say, really. I wanted to record a message for this first episode of season six to explain that from now on I'm going to be taking more of a back seat this season. I'll still be involved and I've identified three or four episodes that I'll be co-hosting and whose topics I'm really excited about. But I just don't have enough time to spare to do more than that at the moment. As I said in Belfast, for anyone who was at our talk or listened to the podcast afterwards, I really love doing interviews, so I hope that I'll be able to keep doing those and do get in touch if you want to talk to me about something. Another more personal reason that I wanted to step back a bit at the moment is that I have once again taken a job outside conservation. This was partly for practical reasons. Um, I've always been upfront about the fact that it can be really difficult to find conservation jobs that work with my family life, especially now that my children are six and eight years old. But it was also for my own sanity, actually. I've been doing conservation in one way or another for about 15 years now, and I have a real love-hate relationship with conservation and with the profession, I would say, at the moment. And as I've got more experienced as a conservator, I found it harder to find work that satisfies and challenges me as much as my first couple of jobs did. So I've taken a non-conservation job that pays the bills and gives me all the practical and intellectual challenges that I could want and more. And... um, Hopefully that will free up a bit of time, as I said in Belfast, to do just the fun bits of conservation so that I can fall in love with it again. Or at least that's the plan. And ironically, in fact, my decision to move away from conservation has coincided with several invitations to get involved in interesting conservation projects. And I always find it impossible to say no. So I've said yes to all of them, which might be a disaster. Um, I've never been more popular So I'm going to try and combine the day job with these interesting sidelines and see where that takes me. And no doubt they'll form the basis for another episode or two of The C Word. So I'm sure that is not the last you've heard from me on that. 
I'm really gutted that I can't spend more time on this podcast at the moment, but I know it's the right thing to do. Each hour of content easily takes the three of us 30 or 40 times that long to record and produce and edit. It's been an absolute blast so far doing this podcast. I've learned so many new things and spoken to so many fabulous and fascinating people. But I want to leave before it starts to become a drag rather than a blast. And also by freeing up a hosting slot um, by not recording so often, I really hope that there'll be room to have many more of these diverse and interesting voices on the show. Seriously, guys, if you fancy being a co-host for an episode, drop us an email at thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to have you. And Jenny and Chloe are lovely, lovely people and won't bite. And I just want to say a massive thank you to those two who have become brilliant friends and allies and co-conspirators since we've started doing The C Word together. I love you both so much and I couldn't wish for better and more fun co-hosts. I know the podcast is totally safe in Jenny and Chloe's hands, but I'll still be back from time to time. So see you all later this season. Magnetic Mounting Systems for Museums and Cultural Institutions by Gwen Spicer. The first four chapters cover information on magnets. I find this a brilliantly practical form of introduction to a book of this sort. I've definitely skipped introduction chapters to practical books in the past because while theory and history are very valuable, as a dyslexic person, what I read has to be worth the effort it takes me and relevant to the job at hand. In this case, mounting an object for display, the theory and history presented in chapter one is consistently presented and practically relevant. That's not to say there isn't a good amount of history presented here, but it's neatly presented in, drumroll, a single table. So you only need to delve deep if you really want to. Overleaf, I find a section that is not relevant to object mounting with magnets, a historical note page about the development of compasses. Instead of being an interruption, however, it has the, did you know, brief digression of an interesting conversation separated from the text for the focused reader but provided for additional intellectual richness and a relaxed engaging nature that characterizes the whole book. The science kicks in in chapter two and here I'm particularly grateful for the frequent yellow boxes including the explanations of the meanings of words. I love a glossary of terms section but for immediate understanding of a hurried reader Having them present on the relevant page really increases the usability of the book. Amidst the science, we still have figure image examples of magnetic mounting systems. And how great is this sentence? This mount design has been in place since 1991 with no ill effect. That's such a great practical addition. It doesn't guarantee success, but it's exactly what we need to know when starting a new display. Skipping past more tables of science history, I'm distracted by neodymium magnets and my realisation that I didn't even know there were different types. Factors such as corrosion tendencies, another thing I hadn't considered, and the ideal coatings for different uses and environmental conditions are again presented in an accessible table. Powering through my distraction, I will linger on Chapter 3, Components of a Magnetic System for Use in Museums. There is some more in-depth science in this chapter, and if you're interested in this, then you will find out about the factors relevant to magnet use, causes behind these things, and the ways that they can be used to our advantage, and the ways that they can cause us problems. 
If you're not into the science, you don't need to be, as there's only a few more pages of science and related diagrams before we get to discussions of materials and their uses. It's definitely worth persevering with the science, though. It's clearly and visibly explained and well illustrated. And as the author says on page 47, only through controlling all variables, the magnet, the ferromagnetic materials and the layers in between, that a magnetic system can be reproduced and adapted. We lean gradually more and more towards practical concerns as we move through chapter four, types of magnetic systems. And the case studies begin in earnest. My personal learning style is very practical, so it's here that I'm finally cottoning on to the huge potential of magnets in museums. This chapter is full of helpful tips, hacks, and things to bear in mind while developing your own system. Even considerations such as where to buy different materials. In a book focused on magnets, I've really appreciated chapter 6, the behaviour of gap materials, or in other words, the non-magnetic mounting materials in a magnetic system. You won't be surprised to hear that a lot of detail is covered here. And I would find this summary of options such as friction, static charge, slope, and so on, useful even if I wasn't considering using magnets. And I'd like to take a moment to celebrate the subheading, What Does This All Mean?, and the associated recap of key factors that have been covered. And another summary table. We're in deep with the practical discussions now, from the visitor experience of an object mount to considerations of potential additions to objects and with what adhesives. I have a big fondness for publications that include questions. It opens discussions to the community rather than attempting to be a closed-off and superior instruction manual. Past more case studies, system diagrams and discussions on materials, we come to chapter 8. Useful tools when working with magnets, which includes tips on how to assess the properties of a magnet as well as considerations of the tools that allow maximum flexibility with creating systems. Some of these things may be seen as rather obvious, such as avoiding magnetic materials or workspaces and removing jewellery. But it's these things that allow us to feel we can properly get stuck in and overcome factors that seem irritating or time-consuming. Another thing I appreciate about this book is that it often recaps information, And it's clear that the author assumes and accepts that people will often not read it cover to cover. But with simple recaps, it's still possible to learn a lot from this book. We rarely have time to research, experiment and test as much as we would like to. And this is probably how some people will feel about chapter 9, testing a magnetic system. But with the case studies at the end of the book and the included references to previous publications, many conservators will be able to create something safe and elegant, even if, even if we don't have the two weeks, but only two hours or less than, to mount an object. If you can afford the time to conduct the ideal testing, however, all the information is included here. Something that keeps occurring to me as I read this book is that I'm not asking myself, is X included in the book? Instead, I'm thinking, I hadn't even considered this factor enough to check whether it's been included in the book. Chapter 11 and travelling with magnets is one example. It covers shipping them by different methods and for different reasons, such as with an object for a loan display, or with an object for the purpose of mounting, or with an object for the purpose of securing for storage during transit. Although reading about all the objects one can mount with magnets is fascinating and inspiring, almost more interesting to me is chapter 13, the effect of magnets on collections that are ferromagnetic, or in other words, 
stuff you can't use magnets with. Although this chapter may not all be inspiring diagrams and ideas like the rest of the book, by discussing each collection and the related limitations with magnets, it shows us why not and the things that can be allowed as well as avoided. And now for the case study section. This is a nearly 100-page section that some of us will already have turned to. Others will work up to it from the beginning. Either way, I feel the reader will find this useful, as a huge variety of object types and display solutions have been covered. Of the 100 pages, each case study covers one page. For scientific ease of use, each one is laid out in the same way and presenting the same information in a table format. The author's object type, the type of display, the magnet type, the covering, the slope, the gap materials, the structural support, and the method of securing the materials, plus, of course, a nice diagram and project summary. These are all included in each page table. Not only does this provide a lot of information, but in my opinion, it makes the design of one's own system seem more straightforward and manageable, as if it can be summarised and explained so neatly, it can't be that complicated, as it can be summarised and explained so neatly. As you'd expect, this is a great addition to the book and a great way to finish the main body of it. Following this, at the end of the book, we have appendices, a healthy glossary of terms, and a long bibliography. So here are my final thoughts. In reading this book, I've discovered that I massively underestimated the depth and complexity of magnetic mounting, as well as its huge capacity for careful adaptation and nuance. Magnets can be in front, behind, and within objects, large area supports, or localised. But this is complexity in a good way, and by producing this book, Gwen Spicer has introduced the wider conservation community to these methods, and in an accessible format. We can now develop and grow, and see what we can achieve with it. This isn't an instruction manual for a quick glance, to be told what to do. It's worth spending time with this book to familiarise yourself with the theory, options, and practical examples, to really be able to make creative decisions. While this might take longer than a set of instructions, we all know the benefits of this way of working, for a varied collection particularly. Some might say there's too much science included, but personally my feeling is that this book provides all the information. It's up to the reader to decide what they need to take away from it to achieve their own goals. And if you're anything like me, you'll find yourself happily reading through the science, history and practical issues alike, and we'll all be experts on magnetic mounting systems before we know it. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Patreon shout out! Thank you so much to the new people who have joined us in between seasons. So a warm welcome to Magali, Conserve and Tine. Thanks guys. 
Thanks for listening. We're the C Word, and you've been listening to Lorraine Finch, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about archival collections. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at the Seaword Podcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music and used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.